This is Kate Mulgrew, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. listening to the great big beautiful podcast this week on the show and yeah my, my father was for lack of a better term the, the sampler platter of evil pick any vice <laughs> any, any not nice attribute and he pretty much had it what what got me through it i realized at a very young age that my father and my grandparents all subscribed to the same notion of i was treated badly therefore i am justified in treating you badly that there's this cycle of violence and abuse and drunkenness and alcoholism that goes on generation after generation after generation because they said, well, we, we had no choice. And I've, I've never believed that. I always think that the moment you say, I have no choice, you have made a choice. Here's your host, Jamie Green. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and therorbots.com. You can find us on the socials at therorbots and thegbbpodcast. And thanks for coming back. It is fantastic to have you here again. I am your host, Jamie Green, and I am going to just cut this uh, really short this week because there's not a whole lot I need to say to introduce my guest this week. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski is pretty much a legend in the world of, uh, of comics, of television, of, of writing, and professional writing in general. Uh, he created Babylon 5 and the spinoff Crusade. Uh, he co-created and worked on Sense8. He was one of the original writers for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. He worked a ton in, uh, in, in, in television and animation from the 80s through today, still working, has written several pivotal critical runs on, D- on runs of comics in both DC and Marvel. Basically, if you are a fan of geek culture in any way, you have run up against the work of Joe Straczynski. Um, and probably you are in love with something that he has created. He swung by uh, the show this week, and we talked about his new book, which is a memoir. It's called Becoming Superman, My Journey from Poverty to Hollywood. And I guess it should probably come with a little bit of a warning. He does talk a lot about, um, obviously, his road to Hollywood and how he ended up in comics and television and animation and, and how he got there. But it's really couched in this very, very intimate personal story about his family and specifically about his father. Uh, putting it nicely and um, in the nicest terms I could possibly say, his father was not a nice man. Uh, he says as much. We talk about it as much in this interview. Um, he is not one to shy away from just calling him flat out evil. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see what I mean. There is no uh, sense of, of evil in your mind that his father probably lived up to, didn't didn't live up to. So reading this book, Becoming Superman, it kind of every page or every chapter has has just these jaw-dropping moments where you're like, how? How did Joe make it out? And not only did how, he, how did he make it out, but how did he become a success? And how can he look back on where he came from and and not think that it's just pure fiction? Because so many things that he literally lived through are are so much stranger than anything he could have written in any one of his scripts um, for either comics or television. So if you haven't already picked up Becoming Superman, I really do recommend it. It's, it's a fascinating insight, not only into where he came from personally, but also the road that he took creatively to end up where he is today. Um, but so if you haven't picked up Be- Becoming Superman, do add it to your list. I really do recommend it. It's a fantastic book. It is a page turner. Um, and like I said, it's gonna, you'll, you'll draw your, 
your jaw will drop every chapter. Um, so that's it. I'm going to stop talking. Thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thank you for hitting subscribe. I know our episodes have been spotty a little bit lately. That's just because it's summertime. We will be ramping up again pretty soon as we head toward the end of the summer and back into the fall. Um, so do, uh, keep with us, check out our backlog. We've got over, oh, closing in on 250 episodes. If you're new to the show, you can head back and see what else we've got. We've got pretty much um we've got guests that cover the entire gamut of creativity so whatever you like I'm, i guarantee you we've got somebody that that will fit the bill i am jamie green thank you guys for coming back thank you for hitting subscribe this is the great big beautiful podcast and this is my conversation with j michael straczynski enjoy uh i i i want to start off just by asking i guess how you're doing how how is your eyesight these days uh, fine. Uh, from from many years, I was having issues because of uh, a situation called Fuchs corneal dystrophy, which is a genetic condition that was causing me to lose my sight, along with that early onset cataracts. <clears throat> and they they could be dealt with one or the other, but not both. And the procedures for Fuchs required a full corneal transplant, and I was not happy. But mm-hmm. a new technique came along finally that allowed the doctor to do both and fix it completely. And I am and have been at uh, 2020 ever since the surgeries. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, let's uh, talk about the book, Becoming Superman. Um, it, it's funny. I, I just did another interview recently with Kate Mulgrew, who also just wrote a, a, uh, a memoir. And they are very different. You have very different lives. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm curious to know how the process was for you. I, I would imagine writing a memoir could go one of two ways. It could either be a, a, a painful and difficult exercise of dredging up memories that you might prefer to forget. Or it could be a freeing and cathartic practice of, of just finally getting it all out there and being honest. Um, how, what was your experience in, in writing this book? I would say it was both. Yeah. Cathartic because we were always trained to think that whatever happened inside the house stayed inside the house. And if we ever talked about it outside, that um, you know, terrible things would happen. So it was cathartic getting that part out of the way. Um, it was good to, to talk about those things. The, the oddest part about it, which probably separates it from a lot of other books, is that <clears throat> there was like a detective story in the sense that we moved so many times that after a while it all begins to blur and I would forget this happened here or did this happen over there. Mm-hmm. I had to sit down with people who, my, my family and people who knew me from way back when, to say, okay, this is my memory of what happened. What's your recollection of this? Because when you're moving from town to town, city to city, state to state, you know, every six to eight months, it's hard to maintain a sense of continuity. There's a thing called state-related learning where you learn something in classroom A and you are tested on, half the class is tested on it in classroom A and half in classroom B. Those in classroom A will always score better because they're reminded around them of what was there when they learned it. Mm -hmm. So when you're always on the move, you lose certain elements of that. So I had to go back and really do detective work into my own life. And there were a lot of things that were hidden from us, that had always been hidden from us uh, for various reasons. Uh, and I had to sort of pierce through decades of secrecy and lies to get to the truth. So it was a, a fascinating process. Yeah, I, I mean, because that's one thing that really jumped out at me is you meant you you don't you know hide that the fact that you, there are these truths in quote that you were fed for your entire life or for for much of your life, um, and, and there is this discrepancy between stories about your family that you were told versus what actually happened. So how did you go back at this point and really, as you just said, pierce through that? And how did you learn the truth from what really happened um, after all the deception and all the years and all the lies that you had? It was a combination of things, uh, talking to, again, to relatives, uh, finding paperwork, finding photographs, there were relatives who reached out to me out of nowhere in Eastern Europe that I didn't know that I had. Wow. Uh, who, who was, when I was, I was at, at home working, I got an email, and this is a picture you may recognize, and I thought this could be spam, but you know, I was curious enough to click on it and saw my own face looking back out at me that I did a photograph I'd never seen before. <clears throat> 
hey, this person had been in touch with my family for many years, and uh, they had records and papers and photographs that I, I had never had access to before. And also confronting those two relatives who were still alive with what I suspected was going on and being able to pierce through to the truth. And a lot of it also came through when my father passed away. I got a truckload of documents for the first time that um, really illuminated a lot of what had sort of been lying in the shadows. And between all of that, I, I used to be a reporter for many years. And when you're a reporter, you learn that you the truth accretes like lint on a sweater. You keep yourself out there and one day you brush down and you have the whole story. And it took me quite a number of years where I was finally able to piece together the entire thing and had all the factual records I needed to back it up. The other side of this, though, is that you are a professional storyteller and you know how to tell a great story. Um, and the stories that you tell from your childhood, I found to be particularly vivid. You know, it, it, they were obviously some of these are seared into your memory and it's hard to forget them. Um, but is there really any way to sort of sort out this really happened? This is the way I remember it, but it could have happened a different way. You know, is is there a way to sort of find the line between the two? Um, yeah, again, <clears throat> I went to others, my sister, my aunt, others, to say, this is how I remember it. Do you remember it differently? And if, I, if there was any conflict between them, I would lean into their version, figuring they were more objective. But uh, it, it ended up being more accurate than I thought at first it was because <clears throat> when I was a kid, I was always being dumped with my grandmother to live or my aunt or others and never having stability living you know six months or eight months and then moving again moved like 21 times my first 17 18 years i learned at a very early age to really register everything that was going on around me because that was key to surviving yeah. you learn the rules for wherever you are so that you don't screw up and get hurt sure um so i learned very early on to really start meticulously gathering information and, and, and logging in memories and locking down this happened, and that happened, and that happened. Um, some of the places and, and the time I was a little bit un unclear about, but once I was able to start hooking together this place with that time, with that event, I was able to start putting a timeline together that was that was actually quite accurate. How has the book been received by your family? Um, there really isn't much family left. <clears throat> My parents are gone. Yeah. Um, I have a middle sister who, who read it, and, and I wanted her to verify from her own recollection, that, that was all correct, and she did so. Um, there were things that, that that you know she had heard whispers about that was confirmed for the first time, and uh, things that I found out from her that were even more horrific than happened to me. Um, my younger sister, I don't really have much contact with, and beyond that, uh, I have one surviving uncle in New Jersey, and that's it. That's it. my my immediate family. There's 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 no one left. Yeah. Um, so there is, there's anyone, unless I, unless I go to, you know, my, my, my grandmother's grave and being reading it to her, mm -hmm. which I'm perfectly happy to do if that would make for a good story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's no one else who has a, a voice in it. Yeah. I mean, you certainly don't pull any punches in this book, um, with respect to how you talk about your parents and, and your childhood. How difficult was that for you to reveal so much and to just lay it bare for everyone to see? It was hard because, again, there's a part of my brain that was still nine years old and thinking, if I talk about this, I'll get in trouble somehow. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a thing that happens when you, you don't talk about the truth for a long time, and it begins to weigh on you. And I found that the more I talked about these things, the more that weight began to come off. Um, and I also wanted to expose my father for what he was and for things that he had done. Uh, it, it began. It became very therapeutic in the long run. Uh, so it was a hard, hard process. But I'm, I'm glad that I've done it. Yeah, your father, uh, putting it mildly, was not a nice man. Uh, he, he doesn't come off with any redeeming qualities. You don't even try to paint him as anything other than pure evil most of the time in your descriptions of him. Um, it, it, normally, I would, I would, I would hesitate to say such a thing to somebody and I would I would feel bad saying that but I think that was partly your intent um, and at some point in almost every chapter I had to just stop and catch my breath uh, and really wonder how you made it out alive and how you became even remotely successful 
what was the experience like for you going back and reliving all of those times and those experiences that you wrote about? I mean, did it catch uh, your breath as well? I mean, once again? Oddly enough, not as much as you might, might think, only in the sense that, to me, that's just how I grew up. It's just yeah. the things that I went through. We were conditioned to think that, you know, these things were, were relatively normal. Um, and, yeah, you know, my, my father was, for lack of a better term, the, the sampler platter of evil. Um, <clears throat> pick, pick any, <laughs> any vice, any not nice attribute, and he pretty much had it. Uh, what, what got me through it, I realized at a very young age that my father and my grandparents all subscribed to the same notion of I was treated badly, therefore I am justified in treating you badly. Mm-hmm. That there's this cycle of violence and abuse and drunkenness and alcoholism that goes on generation after generation after generation. Uh, because they said, well, we, we had no choice. And I've I've never believed that. I always think that the moment you say, I have no choice, you have made a choice. Mm-hmm. And that I could choose a different path. So I, I decided at an early age that I couldn't negate, I couldn't kill my father because laws. Um, sure. <laughs> they frown on that, it turns out. Apparently, that's what I've heard. Uh, but, um, but what I could do was negate him. So I thought... Okay, he smokes, I won't smoke. He drinks, I won't drink. He's, he's a racist, I won't be. He's a sexist, I won't be. And I just itemized literally every single thing about him <clears throat> that was a strong personality trait and decided to go the other way. And as I mentioned in the book, had he been a better person, that would have been a worse one. Mm-hmm. But he really didn't have any good qualities for me to negate. Um, and that determination to not be my dad... Uh, was what I think got me through that situation alive and, and led me to, to where I am now. And that choice to take personal responsibility for myself and not blame somebody else has you know, affected and, and formed every decision I've ever made ever since then. Uh, when I was in college and was dating, uh, the question of you know, do you, how do you handle birth control came up and... and a lot of guys, do I have that conversation or they want the simplest way possible? And I thought, no, look, if, if I am serious about taking personal responsibility for my actions, <clears throat> for myself, and as opposed to my father who would, you know, do terrible things, mm-hmm. then I would need to do the proper thing, which is if I know I don't, I don't want to have children, I can't have someone else take the responsibility for that choice if something goes wrong. And so in, in my early 20s, I marched into Planned Parenthood and had a vasectomy. And even then, the doctor was like, are you sure you want to do this? Because back then, in particular, it was irreversible. Yeah. Now they make it so that you can change your mind down there, but back then it was not. And I said, no, I, I, this is the right thing to do. I'm, again, breaking the cycle of irresponsibility. And in a way, I was also kind of killing my father. Because in my family, I was the only one who could bear our family name going forward with any kids that might have. And um, I wanted to sort of end that line right there. Yeah, you, you, you talk about this in the book and you tell that story. And it, what amazed me was how young you were to, and self-aware of the decision that you were making. Did you realize that at the time? Like, did you realize this was a de- I mean, obviously, I think that you probably did, but that it was a decision that would... It, it was an irreversible decision and that this was exactly 100% what you wanted to do. Yeah, I've always been very much kind of older than I am. Mm-hmm. I think that when you <clears throat> start off life in a hostile, abusive environment, you learn to become hyper-reactive and hyper-aware of, of your situation. And um, I've never been afraid to make long-lasting, permanent decisions if I thought they were the right way to go. Um whether I'm, I'm choosing to do something like that or, you know, choosing to engage in a, a fight with a network or somebody, I always ask, you know, what's, what's the very worst thing that can happen as a result of this? Mm-hmm. And if I'm comfortable with the consequences, then I say go off and do it. If I'm not, then you pull back. And I was more than comfortable with that decision. Yeah. Um, did you have to, as you were writing, did you have to pull back from fictionalizing anything? I mean, that's... You, you, for the last however many years you've you know you've made a career for yourself in writing in fi- writing fiction did you have to sort of say okay 
I can't add flourishes to this. I can't add, you know, more than what really happened. Yeah, that was a huge part of the, the process for me because um, when I did Changeling uh, for, for Universal and Clint Eastwood, uh, I made sure that virtually everything that was in that script was taken directly from uh, a newspaper article or a transcript or, or, or a hearing document or a letter because the story was so bizarre that I knew if there was any one thing that came out that was that was wrong or false or that I, that I got a, I mistook, then it would call the entire document into question. So I thought, here, I need to go back to being a reporter. I need to, if I was hired to do this job, how would I report it and stick just to the bare bones facts and not embellish? Um, when I first took the book out to market, there were some comments of, well, we're not seeing enough of your emotional reaction in here and there should be more of you being upset or, 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 or challenged or, you know, the, the tearful side of it. Mm-hmm. And I went the exact opposite direction. No, it needs to be just stated in the most simple, straight up, non-emotional way possible because the moment it becomes about, oh, poor me, then it, it, it becomes false, I think. Yeah. And to just keep the description of the events as repertorial and simple as possible. I do notice that. And, and I, I think I... It registered when I was reading it, but now that you're mentioning it, I, I'm thinking back. And I'm like, yeah, very much so. You you paint yourself, or the way you present yourself as a younger boy and younger man is with this heavy, heavy dose of emotional detachment. You know, it's like there are a few times where you mention that you cried in response to something that your father did. But most of the time, it was just about this is what happened. This is how awful it was but I wouldn't let him see me respond or there was just no mention of an emotional response. And I have to imagine that there was plenty of emotional response going on at the time. There was particularly in the earlier years, but the thing that happens when you are um, in a situation like that is you begin to pull back emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a thing we call reactive attachment disorder when you was someone you can really trust and you start your emotions start being sanded gradually away. And it's the only way to deal with the awful situation you're in is you, you keep those emotions at arm's length. And unfortunately for me, um, that became a real issue as I got older, was I got more and more divorced from a lot of my own emotions. Um, there are times when I was still living at home in late high school, early college, and I remember when there was violence and, and abuse and, and terrible things going on in the house, I would be in my room sometimes writing something funny, writing a comic or a humorous column or an article or a short story and crying at the same time, mm-hmm. which are, you know, those, those are two diametrically opposed things, but you have to be able to bifurcate yourself enough to do it. And after a while, the bifurcation you do for survival becomes something that you really can't turn off anymore. Yeah. So for me, um, to this day, there's a lot of emotions that I would love to be able to touch that I can't get to. Mm. Uh, and that may also be part of why the book is at arm's length emotionally at times because I can't get there anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, not a not, not a comfortable thought, but I also realize that it, it allows me to be more objective about things. Yeah, which which is harder? Was it more difficult to to write the book and have to you know dredge up all these memories, or now when you're doing interviews and press and having to tell these stories again and again and, and you know give voice to all these stories, whereas before they were just words on a page. It's, it's actually harder now, oddly enough, because, again, the stories that are in the book are things that I just grew up with. That's just, yeah. that's just what I went through. And to me, and so whenever I would tell people before I wrote the book about this or that, they, they would look at me with this horrified expression. <laughs> and like, are you okay? And <clears throat> I'm like, no, this, that's just how I grew up. It's just, it, just, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and now that the book is coming out, there's a part of me that is terrified that people <laughs> will know all of this. And... Um, Again, the PTSD part of my brain that goes into, you know, strangers will know your past now. And, mm-hmm. Oh, shoot. Um, so this is kind of the more nervous-making part of the whole process. Goes, so I was just t- telling you the stories to myself before, and now I was like, oh, my gosh, the whole world's going to know. I'm going right. to hide into my 
hide under the bed for like a year and a half. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's one thing to tell a story of this is my career and this is how I became a writer, but you have such, um, I guess I could say, unique. You you have unique upbringing and experiences that um, I think most people can only imagine and. It, it, quite honestly, much of it read like a story. It read like fiction because it's it's so alien to to my reality that I was reading what you lived through and thinking, no, there's no way this could be real. There's no way he actually went through this and that his father actually did these things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, now you've got to tell your story to strangers like me. <laughs> which, uh, that's also a reason why I, I tried to include much documentation as I could. And one thing that's, you know, because it is so bizarre in so many ways, I figured I would start off with the most challenging part right up front that I was conceived in a brothel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the letter from my father and my mother confirming that piece of information. I figured after you confirm that, like, <laughs> you know, it's all downhill from there. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk, you describe how comics were your escape. You know, you had your box of Joe's comics and they were a way to sort of process the world around you, escape reality for a bit. And I think they did that for a lot of people. But for you, it was, um, I think it was a genuine escape from, from some of the horrors that were happening in your family and in your, in your house. Um, and that then obviously led to your life as a writer, and this is the story that you tell and the life that you lived. Do you still see writing that way, though? I mean, is writing still escapist for you? Yeah, I think it is, <clears throat> uh, in large part because... Um, I just enjoy the process so much, and I enjoy hanging out with these characters. The last time that I had uh, two consecutive days write, did not write anything at all, was I think around 1998. What? Uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> because I love it, and it's here. It's not an escape for me because I have actually have a, have a, have a pretty good life and a very happy life, and I'm very pleased with it. Um, but there's so much fun to me in spending time with characters because when I write, I'm not trying to figure out what they're going to do. I just watch what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. I open up this window and I'm constantly enchanted by what I see and I'm surprised by what I see and I'm trying to keep up with what I'm seeing as fast as I can when I type. Uh, it is the most fun that I have ever had. When I was a kid, writing was an escape and comics were an escape, as they are for a lot of people. You know, in my family in particular, it was you know, my, my family had no moral code whatsoever, but here there were heroes who stood up for something and, and, and believed in something, and that led me to you know, hold on to the idea that there is more in the world than, than violence and misery. Uh, and so <clears throat> that sustained me for a long time until I reached the point where I didn't need it to sustain me anymore, where the writing became not an escape but an adventure, when it became fun, when it became effortless. Um, there's a thing where imagine for a moment you're looking at <clears throat> a ballroom and there's two people dancing at the other end. Mm-hmm. One guy just got out of the Arthur Murray dance school and he's doing fine, but you can see him in his head going one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Right. And the other side of the hall is Fred Astaire <laughs> and he's just dancing. There's trying to dance and there's dancing. There's trying to write and there's writing. Yeah. And at some point I reached a stage, I mean, I'm nowhere near the front of stair level, but the idea that at some point you stop doing it and you, you just become it and, and becomes a natural, transparent, joyful, non-homework experience. And I have more fun when I'm writing than anything else. People say, let's go on vacation. You know, I'd rather spend time with these really interesting characters. So for me, it's, it's not an adventure. It is. It, it's not an escape anymore. It is just the most fun thing I get to do every day. Yeah. So it sounds like whether or not you're writing for, uh, whether or not it's a paid project, whether you're writing a show or a, a comic or a book, you write for you. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think any writer uh, worth his salt has to. In the end of the day, yeah. Uh, it has to be your ideas, what what you're passionate about, what you care about. Uh, as part of that, <clears throat> there are about a dozen screenplays and almost the same number of uh, pilots that I've written that I've never shown to my agent because he will probably end up selling them <laughs> um, that I wrote just for me. 
Mm-hmm. Like we're all, like my offerings to the gods of whatever does this to say, you know, you, you can't make the art always just about selling stuff because if you do, then it isn't art anymore. And he knows that they're there. Uh, he asked me like once a year, can I see some of these scripts? <laughs> <clears throat> no, you can't. Those are for me and for the writing gods and nobody else. And when I when I pass away someday, um, those will be destroyed uh, because that you know they're just for me. I think as any writer, you must write for yourself first, please yourself first, explore the things that matter to you first, then the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, <clears throat> that's interesting. You really want them destroyed? Yeah, hmm. want them to stay in, in the box? Well, no, you know, I, you know, I hear that. Other, you know, other artists will do that. You hear musicians do that. You know, like Prince wrote, what, thousands of songs that they found after he died and he never did anything with them. He he just wrote them for himself. And you hear other writers have, you know, manuscripts and books written and, you know, they want them burned or destroyed after they pass. And, I mean, I get the sentiment, but I also kind of don't. And this probably because I'm, I'm not... All right. You know, I'm not to your level of writing. I still try to write. I'm not writing. Um, and so the idea of writing something for myself, I get that. But I would still always want to be like, yeah, if I can sell it, that'd be great. Let's sell it. Let's do something with that. Um, so I think that's fascinating when, when I hear people say that. They're like, this is something for me. I've written this and I don't want anyone to see it ever. Well, I'll give you the obverse example of that. Uh, I knew a number of writers I first came to town in Los Angeles, there were about maybe a dozen writers that I knew who um, were very well established. They worked in television for the most part, some worked in other areas. Um, and everything that they wrote, they wrote to sell or as part of an assignment. And when they didn't have an assignment, um, they didn't write. Uh, or they wrote it specifically to try and sell it to that person. Uh, and in, very often I would say to them, you know, why, if, if, if this current project isn't selling, why don't you write something else just for yourself first, and then maybe down the road, try theater, try a book, try something else. And they would not do so. They were all focused on the marketability, and most importantly, they would say, this is the kind of writer I am, this is the kind of story that I tell, and that's the end of the discussion, which is fine as long as you're being fresh as a writer and the town wants those things. But there comes a point when you know, you have to grow beyond those things as a writer and try different things and not worry about the commercial side so much. And they didn't. And one by one, they all fell by the wayside. And there is not one of this group of writers I'm thinking of who is still working today. Huh. They they lived in a box and they died in a box. Yeah. That's what boxes are for. Yeah. Now, is that one of the reasons why you have intentionally written for so many different media and across different kinds of formats throughout your career? Um, or does writing a screenplay versus a novel versus graphic novel, do those scratch different creative itches for you? I think it's kind of actually both. On the one hand, yeah, they scratch different different itches. Um, but I think they also uh, they overlap. So writing, <clears throat> say, a good article teaches you structure, which you can use in a short story. That teaches you dialogue, which you can then use in a, say, a one-hour pilot, which teaches you to write at length that you can then use in a novel or a screenplay. Uh, and I think that writing in different genres, writing in different forms, keeps you fresh as a writer. It's like crop rotation. You don't want to grow the same things all the time. Or in my case, you know, crap rotation. Uh, <clears throat> and there's also what I call the, the Prince from a Distant Land scenario. You see... Comic book publishers deal with comic book writers all the time. They're not impressed. Mm-hmm. Movie studios deal with screenwriters all the time. They're not impressed. TV networks and studios deal with TV writers. They're not impressed. But a comic book writer coming to the television world suddenly is shiny. You're the prince from a distant land. A movie writer going to television, shiny, prince from a distant land. And the more you can keep moving, the, more, the, the harder it is to get a bead on you. And we have the chance you can reinvent yourself and keep your career going. Uh, it's only when they figure out <clears throat> who you are and what, and, and, and that they decide where you stop as a, as a creative soul. The average, according to the Writers Guild, the average career span for a writer in Los Angeles is 10 years. 
because by then they figured out, they think, all the colors you have to bring to bear, all the things you can do, and they lose interest. Yeah. So it's vitally important, uh, just as, as a creative effort, to always be looking into different forms. And there's what I call the three-legged stool theory, which is if you're in the creative arts, whatever that happens to be, you need to have three sources of revenue at all times. Um, so that if one of the legs of the stool goes away for a while, which it always will, you lean back on the other two until you have a third one to put back into place and lean forward again. So it's whether it's been you know, short stories, articles, television, or television, movies, comics, whatever it is, I always have three different venues I'm working in at all times so that A, I'm financially stable, but B, most importantly, I'm always being challenged creatively by working in different forms. Yeah. So uh, what haven't you done? When's your children's picture book come out? <laughs> <coughs> Well, I suck at poetry. <laughs> it, it's so bad. It's just awful. I mean, it, it, ain't the, it ain't the smell. It's burning of the eyes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did recently write uh, my first nonfiction novel, which um, is out to buyers now, and I'm hoping to get some good word this coming week sometime. Oh, great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. Uh, yeah, poetry, songwriting, forget it. I'm tone deaf. It's awful. Um, the rest I'm still working on. Fantastic. Um I wanted to ask Babylon Five. Do you think something like that show, which was so much the vision of one person or a very small group of people, could get made today? I mean, would a network even consider a multiple season arc show written almost entirely by one guy? Well, it wasn't the intent originally to write <laughs> all one guy. Sort of. Um, we had freelancers for the first two years. I wrote about half of each season. Then circumstances, you know, changed along the way, and I ended up writing all the third, all the fourth, and all but one of the fifth seasons. So if I had told them that uh, <laughs> going in, oh, I'm going to write 92 out of 110, they would have smiled and nodded and taken me out for a nice afternoon of electroshock therapy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we never would have sold it. Uh, certainly, though, that being said, you know, before Babylon 5 came along, there were most TV shows you know, were episodic in nature. You hit the reset button at the end of the show, so each episode could start fresh, particularly in science fiction. I mean, there were soap operas that had long-term arcs, but nobody had ever said, I'm doing a five-year arc, beginning, middle, and end, right. and we're done. And the good thing has been seeing the degree to which that structure has become much more accepted, and, and, and we do have networks now that are open to a five-year arc um, some do better than others, mm -hmm. but uh, these days it's hard to find a show that's not built in with a five-year arc or some kind of a long-term arc. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, after I did B5, Ron Moore took that structure and then took it to the next level with, with Battlestar. Mm -hmm. Dan Lindloff did a similar thing, and he even said as much to me. He took Battlefire's structure and applied it to Lost, and that brought it more into the forefront of the vocabulary of television. And from those two, it just took off, and now you, you can't swing a cap without – not that I would recommend that kind of thing <laughs> – Without um, running a show that has a multi-year arc, yeah, um, you know one of the things that that show is so famous for today is that you know that you had that you it was the first to do that multi-year definite arc, and that you sort of more or less knew how the show was going to end when you began the show. Uh, by day, I work in publishing, and I do a lot of work uh, with educational publishers. And one of the current trends in curriculum development is to, quote-unquote, begin with the end in mind. And basically, that means if you're a teacher, you begin your lesson with the ultimate goal. Like you know what you, where you want your students to get, and you know, you know how, and then figure out how to get there. And I think that, from what I understand and from what I've read, that's what you did with Babylon 5, is that you knew this was the arc, this is what roughly was going to happen in each year, and this is where we're going to end up. Is that, some, is that how you approach all of your writing projects? Do you always have an end in mind, or do you ever go into something, you know, with like basically saying, I have no idea where I'm going with this, I'm just along for the ride? I think I'm too insecure to try the along for the ride part. Uh -huh. uh, I... I always like to know where I'm going as a writer in the story. I may not know, you know the stops along the way. I mean, we could decide that we're going to go to San Diego, and so that's our destination, but we'll stop here and there along the way and be open to serendipity. But for me, one of the most important things to do with an audience or readership is to play fair. And 
that what that means is that at the end of the day, whenever you finish the novel or the teaching program or the, the mini series or the five year series, that you can take all the bits and pieces of that, back it up, look at it again from the beginning, and all the clues and information you needed to get to the end are there. It doesn't feel arbitrary or stapled on. It feels like a natural outgrowth. Uh, but you, to do that, you have to know what your end is going to be. If you don't, you can come up with something really kind of interesting and cool, but it may be kind of very much at the last minute or feel false or require characters to do things that they wouldn't, they wouldn't normally do otherwise. So for me, I, I need the structure and the safety line of having uh, the end part already in mind. Mm-hmm. But, but the, I, by virtue of having that safety line, I have the freedom to go far afield in the process of the writing, knowing that if I got lost or don't know what I'm doing or I suddenly lose track of myself, I can always retreat back to that safety line, regroup, and then go on. Yeah. Um, so that being said then, uh, when it came to something like Sense8 that ended before your story really ran the course of what you wanted to tell... Um, how much more of that story did the three of you have planned out? And is there any thought to telling those stories in a different format? Not really. No. Um, we, we did have a, a much larger arc plan for the story, but there are a number of issues we, we ran into, including budget and other areas that we had no, no control over. Um, and I think that none of us really would want to do that in other forms because we set out to tell this story in this medium. Yeah. And <clears throat> part of the, the fun and the reason to do Sensei was to produce a show in a way that had never been done before. Um, we, we shot that show entirely on location, no, no stage work at all, in nine cities around the world, in the first season in particular. <clears throat> and the idea of having a telepathic conversation where you're characters in San Francisco, and suddenly the person who is in Germany is like in the same room with her, mm-hmm. having a conversation, and then you shoot the exact same conversation in Berlin six months later with the same staging and both on the other side, the intercut the two together, was something that was boggling uh, <laughs> and was something that no one, ever, never, no one ever tried to do a planetary story before at that level. And actually, one of the funnier moments of the production, I put quote marks around funnier, is um, we, it took us months to work out the first season of that show because it's, it is so wide. It's, it's eight characters who suddenly find themselves in each other's minds for the first time and don't know why this is happening and who are you and how do you know my secrets. And we laid out everybody's arc and these metal boards that went clear across the room. We had hundreds of cards up on the walls. And we had worked out this character's arc and that character's arc and where this character intersects with that character. And when this character needs help, that character shows up. We laid it all out over a period of months. And we're looking at this catastrophe covering an entire room. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> and they looked at me like, what? <laughs> we forgot something. Time zones. <laughs> because, you know, one character may need someone else's help, but it's four in the morning. That person's asleep. Yeah. And had they had a knife nearby, I would not be having this conversation with you now. <laughs> so out came the cards. We back and did everything. We set up clocks around the room so we knew where everyone was time-wise, and we restructured it all. Oh and they just hated me. they hated me a lot for that. Oh my gosh! So you you hit on something I wanted to ask though, because that that show was so daring and it took so many risks. Um, and you know, you hear a lot like, oh, it did something you've never seen before, but that show really did so many things that audiences had never even imagined would be possible in a show. And on paper, it seems like this, um, really heavy, expensive lift with a complex plot. And like you said, shooting all around the world, how difficult was that to sell? I mean, what, what convinced Netflix to take the risk? It's kind of funny, actually, because um, we we wrote the first three scripts on spec because <clears throat> we knew that this was a very unusual approach to storytelling, really had never been done before, and we tried to explain it. It would take three days, mm. and the executives we were talking to would start frothing at the mouth and pass out. <laughs> so we, thought, we need to write 
the spec at least. We wrote the first episode. Well, that was kind of fun. Let's do what's doing that. Let's do one more. We wrote the second one and the third one. And now we're going to take it out to the market. So we sent the first three scripts out to you know, Netflix and a bunch of other networks. And uh, the Wachowskis came down to L.A. for what was going to be a week of meetings. Our first meeting on a Tuesday was with Netflix at, I think, 11 a.m. And instead of talking who's the bad guy, who's, what's the art conflict, what's the action component, we spent the entire hour talking about gender and identity and privacy and how you define yourself as a person and are you defined by the things you talk about or are you defined by your secrets? And this whole like philosophical in the tall grass conversation, nothing about the production really. And we left thinking, well, we screwed that one up right. uh, because we went you know far too much on, on the philosophical side of things. And we said, well, we'll do better on the next one. Next was HBO, we'll do better for that. And we went to lunch and over lunch, Netflix called and said, we're buying the show, stop pitching it. What? Uh, and because, so they got it. They, 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 they understood what we were talking about on the, the level of the themes we were addressing. Again, privacy and gender and identity and sexuality. And they said, we're, we're fine with it. Go and do, just write your show and make your show. That's incredible. And how often does that happen in the industry? Well, it's happening more now than it used to, I think. And that's why I'm, I'm very encouraged by what we're seeing on television. I think we've, we've kind of entered a new golden age of TV uh, in the sense that, number one, um, there's 500 hours of television being produced right now, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say that there are 500 TV shows in production uh-huh. right now, slightly different than the hours. Um, and because of that, networks and studios need the best showrunners they can find and the showrunners are often saying well yeah i can do this but you have to let me do it my way mm-hmm. uh plus a lot of people fled the movie industry to television because it's kind of gotten more commercialized on that side of things and there are shows that, that I, I look at now that i think they could not have done this five years ago you look at uh, mrs Maisel, you look at uh, chernobyl you look at doom patrol which is so far off the grid as yeah. just beyond the pale but these are in the legion these are such smart smart shows that take such great chances and I, i'm just i'm enraptured by what i'm seeing on television now so i think it's it's been great yeah i've talked to a lot of people who have um either written or directed or show run shows for netflix and almost to a t everybody has said that netflix is brilliant to work with because they they basically give you as much freedom as you could ever hope to have like they like they're, they're, if they have notes on a on a screenplay, it's almost like encouraging notes. Like they they never try to steer the ship. They just say, "Tell us what you need," and then run with it. And that's encouraging to hear from an audience perspective because that means we're going to get the the stories that creators want to tell and that and, and are not hamstrung to shoehorn in others. You know, like you know, marketing things that the market, the guy in marketing thing would work better. Yeah. What, 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 what they do that I think is the most encouraging thing <clears throat> is whenever a bunch of people take on a really, really, really big job, my feeling is about halfway through, most of them forget what they started to do in the first place. <laughs> they just focus on dealing with the crisis in front of them that they forget the larger purpose that they started with. And what Netflix in their notes, the few that they gave us, tended to be more along the lines of, remember when you came into us and you talked about A, B, and C? Mm-hmm. You may be drifting a little bit from your original intent because you're trying to put out fires. Just to remind you, this is what we talked about and this is what we need you to keep on track for. And it reminds you, oh yeah, that's why we began this heinous process in the first place. And it brings you back to where you were. Yeah. I mean, we could talk forever about how Netflix and now, like you know, you mentioned Doom Patrol, like the DC Universe and all these hyper-specific streaming platforms, how they've changed the industry and how they've changed viewing habits. And people, you know, I mean, there's tons of think pieces out there. But, I mean, as a creator who works in the industry, do you think that that model is sustainable? Or is it a bubble waiting to burst and, and you know, we're going to fall back to some sort of status quo that we had in the past? Sustainable is, is I'll take that word off the, off the grid for just a second. Okay. Yeah. Combine this from a different perspective, which is the technology of storytelling has now gotten so inexpensive. Um, I mean, you can get cameras, you know, that shoot 4K on your on your iPhone now. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think it will begin, 
and has already begun bringing in a lot of new voices operating on their own. And I think that as the te technology keeps advancing and putting those communication skills and, and resources in front of young people and people who want to experiment, you will see more innovative stuff being done. Uh, I think that uh, the, the market shows no sign of collapsing anytime soon because there's just the, the maw of the beast that has to get fed. Um, so I think that we will be seeing more and more of that. What I'm curious to see, if this happens, and this is my projection for down the road. Okay. People don't go to bookstores to buy, let's say, uh, a, a, a double-day book. They don't go to bookstores to buy a you know, random house book. Mm -hmm. They go to buy a particular author. And I would not be surprised, you know, given, again, technology picking up the pace, becoming more inexpensive, and people identifying certain creators as ones they want to follow, like Joss Whedon or others, that down the road you will see, you know, not just the Disney Channel or the Netflix Channel, but the Neil Gaiman Channel hmm. or the Joss Whedon Channel as studios and networks make deals with them. We know you have followers. We know that these people will show up to, to watch your shows. Here's X number of dollars. That may not be a whole lot, but it's a good chunk. Go make your shows. Here's your own streaming service. We'll incorporate you know, your channel with, with the Joss Whedon channel, with the Drosselinski channel, and you can all do your own programming, and you'll have a structure that's much sim more similar to what book publishing is. Mm -hmm. Sounds expensive for me as somebody who's going to subscribe to those things. <laughs> well, hopefully it'd be like, you know, let's say that Studio A decides to do this. You would pay Studio A um, uh, your fee, and then you would get those channels as part of that. The, the Netflix financial model, as it was explained to me, is that they know what all their subscribers are watching at any given moment. Um, parenthetically, they said that um, the average viewer watches on a, on a binge show two and a quarter episodes. The first two to see what's going on, then the, the, the quarter of the next episode to resolve the cliffhanger, then they stop there and they pick it up. So they know every show that's being watched, and they know that if they get, for instance, X number of viewers who are watching documentaries about trout fishing in northern Ottawa, they know that they can produce a show that will make those subscribers happy and keep them around, so the cost of that show will be commensurate with the, what those subscribers are paying. Mm -hmm. So you could say, okay... Joss brings in X number of viewers. We'll allocate X number of dollars for him. We know that Neil brings in X number of pe people. We'll, we'll give him this, this amount of money. We know Joe brings in at least five people. Uh, we'll bring him a budget, commensurate with that, so that the income from the streaming service is divided appropriately amongst those who are bringing in those people, and we'll keep them coming around on a regular basis. It, it sounds like it's, you know, the, with, with this model that even with the one that we have now, leaving aside, you know, this model that you're describing now, but it sounds like it's becoming more of a sure bet for studios and for streaming platforms. Um, when, when they throw money at a show or at a movie, they're not doing so randomly. Um, but it also seems like as from a creator's perspective, that when you're asked to create something, you know that there's already an audience there because they wouldn't be asking you to do, do it if there weren't. And that's got to be a little bit it's got to take some of the stress off. Yeah, it does, does take some of the stress off because, you know, they're coming to you in a friendly tone of voice. <laughs> but at, at, at the other side of that is you then have to produce. And you, there's also the risk of, okay, if I know that this audience will always show up if I do A, B, and C, mm -hmm. the danger is what if I do D? Right. What if I do E? That puts you again, as we mentioned earlier in, the, in the, our conversation, back in the box. Right. So I think it, it can encourage freedom to pursue the ideas the studio wants or you're known for, but pursuing the ideas that go beyond that becomes a risk. Um, in, in the movie business, if you write, let's say, an action movie, you get X number of dollars. If you write a second action movie, you get X plus a certain percentage increase. If you write a drama instead of an action movie, your price drops back down again. Because you're not tested in that area, and they, they can't bank oh, on it. Right. So the the encouragement and the, the 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 pressure for writers and directors and creative people in general to stay in their lane is immense. 
So you always have to balance out, great, they trust me, they're gonna give me this cash, it's great, with have I just made a deal with the devil? Mm -hmm. And build in some room in there to explore new things. Otherwise, you end up you know, back in the box. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know we're coming up toward time, and we've actually already passed how much time I said I would take, so I do thank you for that. But um, I wanted to ask you, I know you were good friends with Larry Dottilio, and he recently passed. I wonder if, um, and you, you, you talk about him in the book, but I wonder if you could share what he was really like as somebody who knew him very well, and what what you'd want the world to know about him besides that he was a good writing partner. <laughs> it's been a hard, hard couple of years that we lost Larry. We lost Harlan Ellison, who was a friend of mine for many, many, many years. I, I reached that point, I think, where it was, I think it was Mark Twain who said there's no one left to play with anymore. Um, and Larry was was bigger than life. He was hysterically funny. He was the one person who could always make me laugh. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a hard laugh. I, 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 I go to a comedy club. I smile a lot, but I don't mm-hmm. laugh a lot, a lot. But Larry could reduce me to tears every time. And um, it, it was hard with Larry because he really wanted to run shows. And, and because he's very irascible, because he's very, you know, um, eccentric in his own ways, it was hard to get studios to kind of, you know, back that up. And he became frustrated with that. Um, and that shows sometimes in his work, but on, on a personal basis, even though we kind of fell apart for a while, um, I I always looked up to Larry as a writer. He was a terrific storyteller, an amazing world builder. Um, we used to hang out all the time. We used to go to conventions together. We went to movies together, had dinner a lot, and I just found him endlessly entertaining and one of the best. Um, father figures I've ever run into. He, he's, he was so, a dedicated father, dedicated husband, and just one of the, the nicer guys I've known. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Um, and finally, Becoming Superman is, is, is coming out now, and the world is about to you know start reading your life in intimate detail. What do you hope that readers take away from the book? Well, that goes back to why I decided to write it in the first place, which is... I, I go to conventions all the time and <clears throat> talk to people about writing and about storytelling. And there are so many people who I run into who say, you know, I, I don't have the right training. I didn't come from a family with money. Um, you know, I, I didn't have the right resources. And they, they limit themselves. Um, and it becomes hard for them to imagine themselves doing it because they don't come from that space. And others who tend to forget their passions. I mean, as kids, we all spontaneously sing, dance, and tell stories. And someone who's an adult tells us, you're embarrassing yourself, knock it off. Um, And we fall asleep on our own lives. And here's the best example I can give to you that ties into the reason I wrote the book and what I hope it will do for others. Um, I, 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 I have a friend, for dubious words, I acknowledge, but I have a friend. Um, who I've known since college. And a few years ago, she, she called me um, very upset because she had been working for the state of California for 30 years in a cubicle, pushing around pieces of paper. And, says, and there's nothing of me in there anywhere. And now I'm you know, 52 years old and it's too late to do anything else in my life. And I said, well, I don't believe that, number one. I think it's never too late to be what you want to be in the first place. Number two, what, what are you passionate about? What do you, what do you care about? Well, I like my pets, she said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what else you got? So I like taking pictures. I'm not a professional photographer, but I like taking pictures. Okay, once you combine those two passions and do pet photography, you can start doing it for vets, for shelters, for your friends. And as word gets out, you can begin gradually making you know, a living at it. Well, I haven't got a camera. I'll get you a camera. Don't do the yeah button. And so if I start now, it'll be at least three years to be established, I'll be 55 years old by then. And I said, well, how old will you be in three years if you don't do it? <laughs> That's such and a good point. <laughs> how come the same? And so she started you know, taking classes, got the camera, began phasing back her hours at the city of California until she reached a point where she was making a living full-time doing what she loved. Wow hanging out with cats and dogs and emus or whatever the hell she was taking pictures of <laughs> and enjoying every day because she stopped to ask the question, what do I care about? And is it attainable? 
And what I want the book to do is tell people that it doesn't matter where you come from, what you think your shortcomings are, the people who tell you it's not going to happen. What matters is the constancy of your passion and the quality of your dreams. And that if you go out there and, and, and force yourself to do what scares you and, and, and do things that you care about, oddly enough, if, if that, that passion will sustain you for the time you need to get good at it. And although nothing is ever guaranteed, the odds are you can make some kind of a living at it. It may not be the best living in the world, but would you prefer to do a, a lot of money at a job that you hate? Or would you like you know, a modest amount doing what you love? And if I can do it with you know, no discernible personality, um, <laughs> the face of the face of like, like an amber alert waiting to happen. Oh no! Uh, a voice like a, a sea lion with a slight New Jersey accent. Then honestly, you know anybody can do it, and that's what I want to say in the course of the book. I come from the most horrific circumstances imaginable, but I managed to pull this off. It is possible. No guarantees, but it is possible. And to follow the possibilities in your own life and see what happens. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>